Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Well, I hope you're ready to get into the Word of God because I've got a lot of Scripture that we're going to cover today. And uh, we're, we're just going to continue in our study of Mark, and we're in chapter 1, and we've been going verse by verse through the book of Mark. And so uh, anytime we read God's Word together publicly, we, we ask that you stand if you're able. If you're not able, of course, you don't have to. Uh, but if you would stand, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verse 21. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of God. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were arguing amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. This is the word of God. Father, we just come before you now and ask that uh, we would listen to your word, having ears to hear, that would we would see the truth proclaimed in your word, eyes to see, Lord, and that you would give us the courage to change our lives, to submit to the truth of your word, and, and Lord, in the process, being sanctified as we submit to you being conformed into your image. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the past several weeks, our text in Mark has focused on one thing in particular concerning the coming of Jesus, and that is of his authority. Mark begins the book giving testimony that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the king who would bring all things to their eschatological end. And that just means the end of time. He's going to wrap it all up. It's all his plan. And to prove his point, Mark pointed out the prophecies that were fulfilled concerning the forerunner, who we know to be John the Baptist. And following that, Mark wrote of the king's divine coronation. His baptism was his presentation by both the Father and the Holy Spirit and it, st- it happened as he began his ministry. And the Spirit, God's Word says, descending upon him like a dove. The Father's voice said, this is my beloved Son. And both the Father and the Spirit were authenticating Christ's divine authority that he was indeed sent by God. However, the mountaintop of the coronation was not all that was required to authenticate and prove that Jesus is who he says he is. And of course... Um, that he was ready to begin his public ministry, Jesus then faced the valley of his temptation. He was hungry, having fasted for 40 days. 
He was completely alone, and he faced the onslaught of temptation from Satan himself. If Jesus Christ was to prove his divine authority, he absolutely must defeat Satan in this hour of temptation. Of course, we read, we know he did. He, he, uh, it was no contest. He passed with flying colors. And following that demonstration of his sovereign authority over Satan in the desert, Mark writes of Jesus' sovereign authority over sin, his preaching of the gospel as he came into the area of Judea and Galilee. And Mark wrote also of Jesus' sovereignty over the sinner in the calling of his disciples. He simply said, come follow me. And these were manly men having jobs of their own. He said, come follow me. He gave them a command and there was no haggling. There was no asking questions about how this would work out. They dropped everything and they followed their Lord. And on the surface, today's passage may have been one that you've read hundreds of times and Perhaps the weight of what is actually happening, happening might slip by you. But this passage has implications that reveal eternal truths about who Jesus Christ really is. And it gives us a glimpse of his glory at creation. From the spiritual realm, we have a proclamation of truth, a testimony from a fallen spiritual being making a declaration which validates Christ's authority. And in addition to that, we have Jesus Christ himself reading scripture in the synagogue in such a way that it unmistakably declares who Christ is. So today I want to show you how our passage reveals the cosmic authority of the creator, the cosmic authority of the creator. And first, if you would turn over to Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, Colossians 1:16. This is going to be a foundational truth that will help us discern what is actually happening in our passage in Mark. Colossians 1.16, he says, Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him, and for him. So Paul is stating emphatically that the pre-incarnate Christ was divinely involved in creating all things, both in our visible and spiritual realms. And because he created all things through him and for him, he has a rightful authority over every single thing that he has created. All authorities means those who rule in any capacity in the physical realm, from the loftiest kings or presidents in the earth all the way down to the lowliest leaders of a synagogue or little old pastors like me. All of our authority, any authority, is merely borrowed authority because he is the source of all authority. And we'll see in our passage how this his authority is exhibited in this physical realm over people, the effect that Christ's authority had on the people in that room. And in addition, all authorities includes invisible authorities, rulers and dominions. And this is a reference to spiritual beings that have existed from the time of their creation at the very beginning of time. And most were faithful to God, but of course we know some fell. And because they followed Satan, the outcome of their appointed judgment 
has been locked in. It's final. They cannot be saved. And their destruction in the lake of fire awaits them. So the foundation we will build upon is all of that. And that's laid. And now we're going to get into the text this morning in verse 21. First, it says they went into Capernaum. So I want to cover a little geography so you can kind of get your bearings as to where all of these things took place. The name Capernaum is derived from Kafar Nahum, and Kafar means village, and the second part of the word is Nahum, and that's obviously named after the prophet Nahum. And the name Capernaum simply means the village of Nahum. And this town is positioned in the northwest of the Sea of Galilee, right up there at the top of the lake. And here's a picture from the boat out on the Sea of Galilee looking back toward Capernaum. By the way, little plug here, we're going to Israel in 2025. If you've never been, we're going to go in the spring. Just put that little feather in your cap. Think about it. Pray about it. I'd love to take every single one of you. In Christ's day, uh, many people traveled through this particular town, and it was the sort of crossroads between various different uh, regions there surrounding the lake. And because of the high traffic, there was a high crime rate in this area. And so the Romans placed a garrison there to kind of keep the peace, Pax Romana. And Capernaum was where Jesus moved after he left the town of Nazareth, where he grew up as a boy. And it, in a way, became the headquarters of his ministry. Capernaum did. Remember what I told you a few weeks ago happened in Nazareth. According to Luke 4, Jesus did his usual thing. He preached in the synagogue or he read scripture in the synagogue. And they got extremely angry and their response was pretty violent as they, uh, they drug him outside and they tried to throw him off a cliff. And I showed you pictures of that cliff and what it looks like. So uh, obviously after that little thing, he, he, left, uh, he left Nazareth. He went down by way of um, Cana, where we know he turned the water into wine, his first miracle, and then on down and settled there in Capernaum. So Capernaum was a beautiful place back then, and, um, and you'll see in the pictures here, it's still very beautiful. And uh, Chris is going to flip through a few pictures here of the ruins uh, of the synagogue and the area there in Capernaum. For the most part, uh, as we see the synagogue, I thought this was funny. It's a holy place, so no apparently miniature schnauzers, no cigarettes, no guns, and no shorts. Okay, so um, that's interesting. Okay, go ahead and, and show the next one. So you see the kind of, this was to the right over here is what they believed to be the house of Peter, um, where Peter's mother-in-law was healed. And of course, we don't know for sure if that's actually where it was, but we do know that this is actually the place that we're reading about in Scripture today. And for the most part, this synagogue, the structure you see here, uh, is not the structure that we read about today, but some of the floor is actually believed to be the actual stones that were in the synagogue in Jesus' day. So these would have been the stones that Christ walked on in our text today. Pretty incredible. It's interesting that the further away from Jerusalem you got in that day and time, away from the core teachings of Judaism and uh, basically out on the fringes of the Gentile world, evil practices were more prominent. 
and you, you see that you get up as far as to the borders up to the north in Caesarea Philippi, and you find that they actually did child sacrifice there to the god Pan. And uh, so the further north you got, the more pagan it got. But this area of Capernaum was very wicked. Uh, in fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus said it would be better for Sodom in the day of judgment than Capernaum. And that kind of tells you where they stood in their wickedness. But you also have to consider that Sodom's sin was in the absence of anything really godly whereas Capernaum was exposed to Christ, the Son of God himself. He came, he performed many miracles, and the fact that he walked among them, he, he placed upon their shoulders a greater responsibility to believe and to turn to God. So that's why there was that, uh, why Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom than Capernaum in the day of judgment. So continuing in verse 21, they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And the synagogues were meeting places where people would gather uh, to teach and to be taught. And they often had guests come in and teach or read scripture and expound on the scripture. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing on this day. He went into the synagogue to teach. And obviously because there had been a great deal of buzz about Jesus uh, and what he was doing, um, Jesus was welcome to teach in this synagogue. And we know that Every single place Jesus went, he never went anywhere by accident. Every single place he went was a divine appointment. It was purposeful. It was in the plan of God. And today, in this day, it was no exception as we read in verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And as I mentioned, they would have guests come, well, they would have guests come in and teach frequently. Most of the time, these were scribes who would be teaching. And the reason they would have the scribes teach is because the scribes were the ones who everyone believed to have all of the scriptural authority. They knew what they were talking about. And uh, the scribe would come in and they would quote this other scribe or this religious leader or that religious leader. They would give various options of what the text might mean. It could be this or it could be that. Sometimes allegorical sometimes mystical in nature. Rarely did the scribes who came in to teach convey truth with conviction. Rare, rarely did they take a firm stand and hold to it. And the teaching of the scribes was malleable. It was mushy. And that was the kind of thing that these folks were used to. And here we find that Jesus spoke with authority. And you get the sense that it was the opposite of what these folks were used to. Jesus spoke with Exousia, that's authority, which means rule, dominion, jurisdiction, full right, or power. He was well within his rights to speak with authority. Jesus spoke in terms of what was absolute, with full conviction. It was dominant. It was powerful. Well, why? Because Jesus is the truth personified. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Everything he said was truth dripping from the very lips of God, the creator. And they didn't know what hit him in this little synagogue. It, it really hit them hard, and I want to show you why. Every person who heard his teaching that day, it says, were astonished. And that word is explaisanto, to strike with panic or shock, to strike a person out of their senses by strong feeling. Now, I don't know if you've ever bumped your head before, but that's kind of the picture here. If you bumped your head really hard, how you kind of feel 
dizzy a little bit? Well, this is more of a mental sort of striking out of your senses, okay? A strong feeling. It was not a fake emotional outburst. This was not contrived. This was a sincere, genuine reaction to the truth being spoken with absolute authority by Christ. The Messiah was teaching. The cosmic king was making a proclamation. The creator who actually said, let there be light, was now, to use the vernacular of the day, blowing their minds. He was blowing their minds, and they didn't know what to do with it. They were in utter shock of how he spoke the truth with such authority. And in that very moment, something truly incredible happened. Verse 23, And immediately there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So here in the synagogue there was an imposter, a man who was possessed by a fallen spirit being, a demon, and he just could not keep his composure. In the midst of Jesus teaching such truth, this demon-possessed man shrieked. He was terrified. He could not hold it in. We can learn a lot from this encounter. One thing is for certain is that we know that demons go to church. Demons go to church. I've been a part of many churches over the year. Pretty sure I've met a few <laughs> uh, demons in the church. We shouldn't just assume that because uh, folks are in the church that they automatically are right with God, that they're true believers. Sometimes the enemy has his own agents within the walls of where we worship. And these fallen spirits have a tendency to hide within religion and within religious practices. But we know there's only one truth. There's only one gospel. And immediately in this very moment, in this synagogue, this demonic spirit which I will refer to from here on out as he, because I take it that he was in a man's body. He knew that he was exposed, okay? He was naked in front of his creator. He knew this was the cosmic king with rightful authority. He knew he could no longer hide under the cover of false religion and of false righteousness. And in his panic, in his fear, he wailed out in front of everyone and this is not normal because we find in Scripture, just in reading Scripture, that demons do not want their identities to be revealed because we don't see any of them in the Old Testament. So they were apparently revealed the entire time in the Old Testament. But when Jesus came on the scene, these unclean spirits had an outburst, and I can almost see this man standing there in that synagogue, this demon-possessed man trying to hold it in trying to keep his composure. But because they feel so exposed in the presence of their creator, they cry out, and in so doing, they actually proclaim eternal truth. He says, you are the son of God, he cries out. And it's kind of gross, it's kind of icky coming from a demon. It's true, but I don't like it, but we can learn from it. What does James 2.19 say? The demons believe and shudder. They know the truth. Interesting, though, that Jesus did not want the demon to proclaim the truth about who he was. And honestly, folks, it's because that's, that's what you call bad press. That's what you call the worst of the worst press is when demons are out there proclaiming who you are. Think about it. We know in Matthew 12, 24, the Pharisees already started saying this. 
This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They were already accusing him of using the demon's power to do it or Satan's power. So imagine if those who were demon-possessed began proclaiming the truth about who Jesus really was. That is bad press. So, of course, he exercised his authority over them. In Mark 1.34, just a, a bit down there in the chapter, it says, He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And look, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. He did not allow them to speak. They knew who he was. And when they could not help themselves and they cried aloud the truth about who Jesus was, he shut them up. He had every right to do so. Look at what we learn from these few verses, uh, the few words the Lord actually allows this demon to speak in verse 24 and the end of verse 23. He cried out saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And at the end of verse 23, he cried out. That word is anakrazo, which means to shout with strong emotion or to scream. These are guttural screams of someone suffering, someone traumatized, an uncontrollable shriek. And then we calls Jesus the Nazarene. Remember, this is not a compliment. In, in fact, it's a cut down because culturally their attitude toward Nazareth uh, was not good. It's, it's much how we feel about um, the, the folks from Arkansas. Just totally, I'm totally kidding, all right? Just messing with a few of you in the room. Um, on this occasion, um, we see that uh, there was this question posed with the folks. Um, but there was another question that was often asked, what good can come from Nazareth? And that was a thing. What good could come out of Nazareth? And, and so this demon was cutting Jesus down in a way. Now this, uh, uh, as we look to other encounters with Jesus and demonic spirits, uh, we have to understand with clarity what's going on. So if you look at Mark 5, uh, the account of the demon-possessed man, he acted very similarly in the presence of Jesus. He said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. These spiritual beings realized that they had an appointed day of torment and they thought that day had arrived. In Matthew's account, they say something interesting as well. They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? In each of these accounts, the demons involved wondered why they were seeing Jesus or they, their creator now. Why now? Is this happening like right now? Is that what we can expect, Jesus? And, and it just completely terrified them. Now, if you were on a phone call and the voice on the other end is someone shady that you've known from your past, like really shady, and they said something like, I have a very particular set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare for someone like you, and uh, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. So if they made that threat to you, imagine days later you're minding your own business and across a crowded room, you see this man who threatened you over the phone walking towards you. He's walking straight towards you. He's got something in his hand, and he slowly begins to raise his hand toward you. 
How would that make you feel in that moment? You have no way to defend yourself and he's walking towards you. What would that make you feel like? Now just multiply that scenario times infinity. And that's what these demons must have felt like staring in the face of their creator. They knew they had an appointed day of judgment in which they would once again be face to face with their maker. And on that appointed day, they would be cast into the lake of fire to be eternally tormented. That's what's going on here. They have knowledge that the people around them did not have. And so they were proclaiming truth that the people around them did not understand. And here in these divinely appointed moments, they see him, they panic, they shriek, they scream, and they reveal who Jesus really is. The same type of interaction happens here in this passage, verse 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. The fact that Jesus was there caused panicked confusion for the demon. The truth Jesus spoke was with such authority that it was an affront to the demon. His holiness was an offense to the demon. He could hardly stand to be in the same room. His identity was terrifying for the demon, and his cosmic authority as the creator was unmistakable to this demon. His authority was unmistakable to the people who were in that room as well. What was in question for them was his identity, who he was, who was this man. In just a moment, they're going to pose a question what is this? Like, what's going on and who is this guy, right? But more often in Scripture, we hear this question of identity. Who is this? And it's an ongoing question throughout the Gospels. Mark 4, 41, And they became very afraid and were saying to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Luke 5, 21, The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? Luke 7, 49, And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Luke 9, 9, Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. John 12, 34, The crowd asks, who is this son of man? Matthew 21.10, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And incidentally, his own people never figured it out. Unbelievable. John 1.11 says, He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not know him. Those who were his own did not know him. And it even took the disciples a long time to figure it out. They didn't answer the question until Peter's proclamation at Caesarea Philippi. And that was revelation from God that gave to Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. You are the Christ. Verse 27, they were all amazed so that they were arguing among themselves saying, what is this? a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What is going on here? What is happening? This was something they had never seen before. 
And the scripture says they were amazed. But this word amazed in Greek, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, but it's ethambethesan. And it means amazed to the point of almost terrified, stupefied, or astounded. So here in these few moments in this synagogue, these people went from being stricken with panic or shock to amazement, stupefied, almost terrified, and astounded. All because of the authority this guest speaker had exhibited in his teaching of the truth and his display of power over this demonic spirit. So what can we take from this today? Well, there are a lot of people who take passages like this and they, they try to twist them and make them all mean all kinds of things for us today. In fact, first of all, let me just say that there are various so-called, uh, they call themselves deliverance ministries out there and uh, supposedly casting out demons, and to add insult to injury, supposedly they're casting demons out of believers, which is uh, ridiculous, and to that I say, just read your Bible. But we can glean truth from Scripture that'll give us some direction in dealing with expectations about what the Scripture means for us. The question asks, are we called to cast out demons the way Jesus cast out demons? The answer is absolutely not. No, we're not called to do that. And as far as I can find in Scripture, demon possession has always been a reality in the world. Demons definitely mess with those who walk in darkness. They tempt, they oppress, they even possess people who are unbelievers. As a believer, they only have power over you to the extent that you give it to them. So you can be tempted by a demonic spirit. But if you are in Christ, you have power over sin and all the forces of darkness, all of the, de uh, the demons and the devil. And if you, if you yourself then fold or if you give the enemy entree into your life, that is solely on you. It's, it's because you gave them the power or the right to do so in your life. But if you are in Christ, that's why you stick to the word of God. You know who you are in Christ and they have no power over you. We, so, uh, we see not one mention of demonic possession, as I mentioned in the Old Testament. Were there demons there? Of course there were. They were hidden. They were covert, active in both occultic religious practices and pagan religious practices, and eventually worked their way even into Judaism. If we do a study of Christ's ministry after the gospel accounts of the ministry of Christ and then after the gospel accounts, we find only two cases of demon possession after Christ's ministry. One is in Acts 16, 17. A servant girl was following Paul, once again giving him bad press. It says she kept crying out saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Look! There's nothing there that this demon said that is untrue. And it followed them around, but being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her, and it left her at that very moment. Another in Acts 19, the ministry of Paul once again, Paul dealt with these spirits. And listen, he dealt with them as being one who was personally chosen by Christ to, as an apostle to lead the Gentiles and to, and to reach the Gentiles in the early church. And what's interesting is the account of the fake Jewish exorcists in Acts. They tried to cast a demon out of a man 
and, and they said in the name of Jesus and Paul, uh, come out. And of course, the demon-possessed man we read attacks them and they fled away from the possessed man naked and wounded. So you can't just pretend to be someone who has authority. You actually have to be in Christ and have the authority. And I will get to that in a moment, what we're to do. Demons are still present and active, but um, after those accounts and acts, there are no references, not one verse of instruction to the church in the epistles and how to deal with demons. In the Old Testament, they rarely revealed themselves, in my opinion. They rarely reveal themselves today, and when they do, I find from the accounts that I've read about that they're just toying with people. They're just messing with them. And all these folks running around saying they're exercising demons. Demons are toying with them. They're deceiving. They're trying to affirm in these people, they're trying to affirm their deception. And it just solidifies these folks in their deception. The fact is, in all of human history, they were these covert agents of darkness until Jesus came. And at that point, they just didn't know what to do with themselves in front of Jesus. They outed themselves in sheer terror, and that's why we see those possessed acting out in certain ways in their, in their shrieks and their screams. Uh, they acted out in self-mutilization or self-mutilation, uh, in nakedness, being unhinged. And, and time and time again, we see in Christ's ministry, the creator of the cosmos dealt with them with that supreme divine authority. You and I do not have God's supreme divine authority because you are not supreme and divine. Only He is. But later, obviously, Jesus delegated that power um, to the apostles as well in the early church because we know from Scripture that demons masquerade as angels of light. They love to twist the truth, and they love to do it especially in the foundational stages of the church, in that first century church. We see it fleshed out in the Gnostics, and we see it in the actions of the Judaizers and what they believed. And today, they're very active in that regard, twisting the truth, causing confusion in the body of Christ, saddling mankind with all kinds of religious burdens, but not just false religions. They're often disguised as biblical truth. I don't know one false teacher that I've listened to or heard that hasn't quoted Scripture. In fact, if you'll recall, the devil quoted Scripture at Jesus' temptation. Just because someone's quoting Scripture doesn't mean they know what they're talking about or that they have authority or that they're rightly handling the word of truth. Matter of fact, so many people today co-opt biblical truth and they teach, as Paul writes, another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. God has given you and I means of discernment, and that is God's word. God's word is our discernment. That's why we must be very serious about how we handle God's word, and we must be very serious about the people that we allow to speak to us in our lives about what God's Word says. Everybody who wears a tie on a Sunday morning or comes on the television, they are not genuine believers. They are not genuine representatives of God. If we do, in fact, come in contact with a person who is demon-possessed, it's likely that you will never know. 
um, in the way that they manifested themselves in Christ's day. And there's only one way that you can deliver someone who's possessed by a demon. Remember, you and I don't scare demons, so don't flatter yourself, okay? We're commanded to share the gospel with everyone and then trust the Holy Spirit to do the sovereign work of God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of the will of God. What does that mean? Well, when God has given that soul the right to become his child, and when the Spirit acts on their behalf and opens their eyes to the truth, nothing can stop God from saving that person, not even a demon that may or may not be possessing that person. The demon has to flee, and that person will be set free. God alone is able. It is the gospel that is the power unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel will set them free even from demonic possession. And one final observation about the text this morning as we look at the last verse in the passage, verse 28. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. There's a significant revelation in this passage of Scripture which caused the news about Jesus to be spread rapidly throughout the region. The truth that is revealed is that Jesus is who he says he is the creator of all things, and he has ultimate authority when it comes to eternal truth. Christ has authority over all things that he created, over rulers and dominions, invisible and visible, and it was very obvious to everyone on this day. And it's interesting that this truth affected the two different subjects in our text today in various ways, in two different ways. The demon was fearful and the people were amazed. The demon was terrified and the people were astonished. And why, you ask the question, why was there a difference in the reaction of the demon and the people? And here's why. And this is so important. The demon knew who Jesus was and the people didn't. That's why the difference. The demon knew Christ's identity and was rightly terrified. The people did not know Christ's identity and they were rightly astonished given the things that he was saying and doing. The demons believe in hell. They know they have an appointed day of destruction ahead. They know of the eternal punishment that awaits them. We saw that in their testimony every time they cried out before the Lord Jesus. But the people, Jesus walked among his own people. He taught them. He healed them. He performed many miracles proving that he was in fact the Son of God, and yet they still rejected him. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen to this right here. The demons knew who he was and could not be saved. The people didn't believe who he claimed he was and they would not be saved. His own people rejected him. And unfortunately, both the demons and all those who reject him will end up in the lake of fire. They're both appointed to judgment. What's necessary, folks, is a combination of both. You need to be amazed and you need to be terrified. Amazed at the mercy of a Savior and terrified at the wrath of a judge. And I'm convinced that when our eyes and ears are open to the true gospel, understanding 
who we really are in comparison to who he really is, the God of the universe, his holiness, and our wickedness being exposed in the light of that holiness, it causes us, should cause us to be terrified, knowing that without him, a day of destruction awaits us as well. We have a, an appointment in the lake of fire if we do not accept Christ. But it causes us to be amazed and astonished when we do come to that reality, that understanding that this infinitely holy God would call us by name and would destine us for eternal glory, even in light of who we are and our wickedness and our depravity. And this morning, it is my prayer that each and every person here in this room, each and every person listening to the podcast, watching online, wherever you are, that you would be both amazed and terrified in the revelation of who Jesus Christ truly is. And in that realization, if you have yet to do so, you would see your desperate need for redemption and that you would repent of your sins. And the Bible says, repent and believe. It's that simple. Repent and believe. Put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you come to him genuinely knowing who he is and you cry out to him, there's a promise in John 6, 37. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Scripture today has clearly taught us who Christ is. The cosmic creator with authority over all things. He is the final judge of the living and the dead. My question to you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If so, hallelujah. If not, if you've yet to believe and repent, do not wait another moment. Repent now, believe now, and come to him even in this moment. And his promise is that he will not cast you out. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.